So today I have on the legendary photographer Henry Diltz. He shot iconic photos for The Doors, Crosby, Stills and Nash, Neil Young, The Eagles, Paul and Linda McCartney, the list goes on and on. And I actually pay homage to him often on Instagram with all the incredible rock moments he's captured in LA in the 60s and 70s. So in part one of our episode, we'll hear about his own personal music journey, the rock scene in LA in the 60s, hanging with Mama Cass, Joni Mitchell, and Eric Clapton in Laurel Canyon, and working with The Doors on the Morrison Hotel album cover. So let's jump right in. I appreciate you making the time because your photos, some of which are hanging in my living room, by the way, um, are evidence essentially of some of Rock's greatest moments. So I've had this fascination with the place and time. And when I say the place and time, I mean California, you know, in the 60s and 70s. And there's nothing like a photo that brings it to life, but also create that mystique, you know? Yeah. So with that said, I wanted to talk about your work, Henry. I wanted to talk about Laurel Canyon. I wanted to talk mm-hmm. about Woodstock, mm-hmm. you know, but given what the season's focused on, I also want to start at the beginning. Okay. So you started out as a musician, playing yes. the banjo, singing with a modern folk quartet. That's right. And you started in Hawaii. Yes, of all places. Of all um, places. Now, I had... Well, I'd been to college for a couple of years in Germany. I went to uh, a, a college in, in, it was University of Maryland overseas branch in Munich, Germany. It was all army brats and, you know, government kids. And from there, I actually made a little, little detour side trip and I went to West Point for a year. Just oh, a share fluke, you know. I, I mean, mean, you're totally the West Point type, so. Right. right. <laughs> I, I had no plans to go, but all of my my um, my army brat friends were studying for the service academies. And I read a book, a booklet in, in my friend's room, and it said, sons of deceased veterans can automatically apply and take the exam. You didn't need to be appointed by a, by a congressman. Mm. And I said, wow, well, that's me. My dad died in World War II. And, and my friend said, oh, write a letter and we're all going to Heidelberg in a couple of months to take the exams. We're going to have a lot of fun. So I just said, yeah, why not? I wrote the letter. And then they said, yes, you're accepted, you know, to, to take the exam. And we went and took the exam. And because I've already been in college a couple of years and most of the kids were high school kids, you know, going into West Point, I did really well and I got accepted. And I said, well, I'm not going to go there. I mean, that summer that I was supposed to report, I was going to hitchhike up to Scandinavia with my friend Mylon Rupert, and we were going to have a lot of fun up there in Scandinavia, you know. Oh, sure you were. (laughs) We thought we might try to sneak over the border into Russia, maybe, and see what happened. Oh, my gosh, and see what happens. But then the dean of the college and all these people kept saying to me, what a rare opportunity, son. Congratulations, you know. And I thought, wow, God, you know, really? <laughs> and I just thought, well, yeah, maybe I need to go then. I don't know. I was just kind of letting the universe decide, I guess. Try it out. And I went. And and I loved it. I'm so glad I went. And I'm so glad I left, you know. Because <laughs> 
it's an engineering school, first of sure. all. The military part was fun, you know, and whipped me into shape, that's for sure. And it's a great memory, a, a fabulous adventure for a year. But I, I knew that, uh, you know, math was my least favorite subject. And so I figured out how to leave. And also, when I was in West Point, a plebe, a cadet, I belonged to the Columbia Record Club. And I would get all these record albums sent, and the ones by Pete Seeger mm -hmm. and Ed Seeger and a guy named Bob Gibson, and these were all banjo players. And I just fell in love. I was mesmerized by that banjo sound. And I said, man, I want to, I got to get back to people and to life, you know. My major in college was, was psychology, which, which only meant that I was real interested in people, you yeah. know, and how they work. Well, West Point is not the best place to go to. <laughs> I wanted life and people and music and I wanted, you know, the band to play the banjo. So when I left West Point after my first plebe year, I bought a banjo in New York City and flew to Hawaii to go to the University of Hawaii because I wanted to keep going to college. And a friend of mine, an upperclassman in West Point, uh, I got to be friends with. And he told me about his mom. His dad was a colonel at Schofield Barracks. And, you know, he, he, he kind of hyped me on Hawaii. And I, in fact, his mother met me at the airport and I went and stayed at their house a few days and she helped me get a place and a motor scooter. And, oh. you know, it was great. <laughs> so, I, so I went to college and I was studying psychology. And then I walked into this little coffee house uh, down near Waikiki called the Green Sleeves Coffee House. Hmm. And as I walked in with my banjo in the middle of the day, the, the owner, proprietor, Cyrus Faryar, he, he saw me walk in. You know, it was empty in the daytime. He said, a banjo, you know, <laughs> my invitation, you know. So I, I went to college off and on a couple of years. I never did graduate, but I started singing every night in this coffee house, the Greensleeve Coffee House. And um, Pretty soon we put a band together, a couple of groups. We'd play here and there. And, and I did that for two or three years. And then we did form this group. And, and first we weren't called the Modern Folk Quartet. We were called the Rum Runners. Uh, and oh. then, then we were called the Lexington Three. And then another mm -hmm. guy joined us and we were the Lexington Four. And we <laughs> used to play every night in a, in a kind of a steakhouse, Dolan Steakhouse down in Waikiki. And after a couple years of perfecting our tight four-part harmony, we uh, came to L.A. to seek our fortune. So you came to L.A. Uh -huh. What did it feel like to make your way out here to L.A. in the early 60s? I mean, how was it? You know, there, it was such yeah. fertile ground at that time. There was probably such really an was. energy emanating from, yeah. you know, at least the West Hollywood area for sure. It was. It was. We actually, we the, our, our leader at that time was a Hawaiian guy named Stanley White, who was a, a, a really kind of a handsome guy who played flamenco guitar with a mm. driving rhythm. And we, we had our act down really well. And he's the one who said, come on, let's you know, pick up. We're going to Hollywood. You know, we're going to L.A. And when we got here, the first night we slept on the floor of a lady, of a girl he knew in, in Honolulu who, who was a, a hooker. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> an 
Well, you needed her. a place to stay. Yeah, he knew her from nightlife in Honolulu, and so we stayed on her floor. And then we found our, our little pl- little place. And then uh, after a day or two, we went to the Troubadour Club, which was the mecca of folk music. Right. And we went there on Hoot Night. It was a Sunday night. That's like open mic night. Open mic like night. Nanny night or Hoot Night or open and night. Wasn't it located on La Cienega at the time? No. Oh, no. it was back. Okay. San- okay. I got this. Santa Monica and, and Doheny, right? Yeah. Ah, okay. Okay. It might Where have been before that. This would have been about um, 63, beginning of 63. Okay, so we got up on stage finally to sing our song, and we started singing this song called The Ox Driver. And when we got to the chorus, which had a big blasting, you know, four-part harmony, and we hit that thing, and people just rose up, you know, in the audience clapping and it was kind of scary. It's like, whoa, you know, what is going, what's happening, you know? Because no one ever did that, you know? But but I understand that most acts, folk acts, grew up in Hollywood. People, you know, you'd see the young Jackson Brown singing and he got better and better and you'd see, but no one ever heard of us. We came from Hawaii. And so they didn't see us growing and getting better and we just hit them with it. And my gosh, you know, was amazing, and and we got an agent that night, and we oh my got gosh. A, you know we 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 had people calling us. We got a pretty soon we were with Warner Brothers Records. We got a manager, really all from that one night. Did you expect it to happen that fast? No, heck no. I didn't expect anything really. I didn't know what to expect. You know, I mean, I just I mean, in telling this story to you, I, I I'm recognizing. Years later now, one of my favorite things is let the universe decide. And yeah. I, I, I can see that I did that all along, you know, without even <laughs> knowing uh, what I was doing. So we quickly, we recorded a, an album with Warner Brothers. We were in a movie called Palm Springs Weekend. And gosh, we really, then we spent the next three years or four years till, till 66 traveling back and forth across the country doing a lot of college concerts and folk clubs and TV shows. We worked all the time. Um, college concerts, you know, folk music was the music of the land. Right, right. Kingston Trio, Peter, Paul, and Mary. And so yeah. uh, colleges were booking, you know, all the time. That's all the only music they booked was folk acts. So we did that. Um, and then one momentous day in Michigan when we played University of Michigan, we were leaving town the next morning and we were, we, we usually went in a van or, or something. And this time we were in a motor home, a Clark Cortez motor home, right? We're, you know, driving around in our little home, kind of like a snail with its, you know, house on it. <laughs> and as we were leaving town, someone said, Oh, look, a secondhand store. And we all say, hey, yeah, stop, pull over. Cause you know, we love, secondhand stores. And of course, I have to say, in case people don't realize it, musicians, all musicians, all of us musicians smoked a little bit of God's herb. You did. You know, of course. I mean, (laughs) everybody smoked God's herb. I mean, you know, I lived in Laurel Canyon. I mean, that's just what you did because it got your mind going. It got your... You know, you wanted, you grabbed your guitar, your banjo, you wanted to play music, you started, you know, thinking of songs. It's just a little kind of a little spark, you know, that got your mind going right where you wanted it to go. 
So we had all had a little morning toke, you know, and then they said, oh, a secondhand store. And we went in. And as we walked in the door, there was a big table of secondhand cameras right inside the door. And the guy in front of me, who was Cyrus Farriar, that guy who owned the Greensleeves Coffee House, was now in the group. Uh, he said, oh, a camera. I'll have one. And he just reached down as we walked in and grabbed one. And I was right behind him. And I went for no reason at all. I said, yeah, me too. Why not? And I grabbed one. Never thought about taking a picture. I mean, it wasn't something I was looking forward to doing or even imagining. But just because he did, I kind of followed. I just said, yeah, me too. Because you walk in there to buy any old thing, you know, spend sure. a little money. And then we got back in our motorhome. And Cyrus, again, he said, well, now pull into the next um, drugstore and I'll get film for everybody. And he came out with these little yellow boxes and said, here's yours, here's yours. I put it in the camera. I said, okay, Cyrus, how do you set these numbers on the camera? You know, <laughs> he said, well, look on the box. It says sunlight, 250 at eight. Oh, okay. Oh, here's 250, here's eight. And that was my school. That was my photo school, that Kodak film box, you know. It's incredible. Because, it's because, and it happened to be slide film, which was another great accident because when the tour was over and I developed the film that I'd taken from, you know, on the road with my friends. So when I got the film developed and got the little boxes back, I opened it up. I said, oh my gosh, look, it's a little, it's a little transparency. It's a little slide. You know, I mean, it wasn't black and white negatives and a proof sheet. It wasn't all the other things it could have been, you know, it was a little slide. Look, a little picture. Let's get a slide projector. And we'll have all our friends over and have, have a slideshow. So we did that. And when that first picture hit the wall, for me, I, it just blew my mind. I, I was gobsmacked. You know, here was that famous moment on the road. It happened to be this picture of our bass player blowing up his cardboard bass case with <laughs> M80 firecrackers on the desert. He blew it up and it went, you know, 30 feet in the air with a column of smoke under it. And he's running away in the background. And I just got that picture. And when that came up, you know, eight feet wide on the wall with all of our friends, everybody go, wow, wow. You know, I just thought, this is, I got to do this. You know, this is amazing. This and is a that, nice hobby. <laughs> that, that is why and how I became a photographer. Um, no other reason but that, you know, accidentally picking up a camera and, and accidentally it was slide film and gosh, otherwise, I mean, if it had been black and white film and I got a proof sheet and I had a, a magnifier to look at each little picture, I would have said, eh, that's kind of cool. It. But it was that impact of that. Wow. wow. You know, that very night I, I said to myself, man, I'm, I'm going to take more of these pictures of my friends here, my karmic group of friends who were in the audience. And then the next weekend, we'll have a slideshow and I'll show them all pictures of themselves that I took without them knowing. See, I loved it when, and I did that week after week. And they would say, oh, I didn't even know you took that picture. And I would go, yeah, you know, that was, that was <laughs> training to be kind of a, a documentary fly on the wall kind of guy. And, and once again, I mean, I was still playing music, but th this was kind of fun that I had on the weekend. And, and um, then since I lived in Laurel Canyon and photographed everybody that I saw throughout the day, some of those people were Mama Cass and David Crosby and 
Stephen Stills. I mean, I think a lot of the people that hung out at the Troubadour and I would see them up in Laurel Canyon or see them at lunch or something. And, and, and so I started taking pictures of them. And I always say, one by one, they became famous. <laughs> and I had all these pictures. You had all these pictures. Well, well, let me let me ask you, though, at what point did the transition fully happen? Did you basically hang up your banjo or, you know, I know you didn't fully, but, you know, say, hey, I'm going to take a break from the modern folk quartet and I'm going to start taking pictures. Well, you know what happened? We we kind of once again, the universe figured this out, I guess, because we kind of accidentally did a a single with Phil Spector. Um, Phil Spector wanted a folk rock group. Now, by now, it was folk rock because right. because in 64, when the Beatles played Ed Sullivan, all the folk groups saw that on TV. We were on the road. We pulled into a motel specifically to watch that show at eight o'clock. And we all went, wow, look at that. Oh, man, you know, they're shaking their heads and going, she loves you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, and we're thinking, what are we singing about the ox driver for? You know, <laughs> but, and, and we went out the next week and we got an electric bass because we had a stand-up bass up until then. Mm-hmm. Our bass player had to carry this bloody stand-up bass, you know, on the Incredible. airplanes and everything. Incredible. So we got an electric bass, electrified our guitars, and then it was folk rock. And, and so this is what happened historically because a, all the folk groups – saw that that night mm-hmm. and virtually i mean i say all i mean almost all went electric and said we're going to play this new music um the, the, and then you had the birds and you mm-hmm. had the buffalo springfield those guys were folk singers who went electric yeah and then the fact that the beatles wrote their own songs uh that uh, plus bob dylan was starting to write you know he wrote an ode to woody guthrie of talk and blues so mm-hmm. Because, you know, previously there were songwriters and there were singers, right? right? I mean, Frank Sinatra never wrote any songs. Um, Elvis, Elvis Presley, Presley didn't. Never wrote yeah. any songs. I mean, so you, you would, you know, the people in the Brill Building would write these songs and then you'd, you'd get the songs and sing. Well, the new sea change was that you write your own songs. I mean, and then you had, you know, James Taylor and Paul Simon and Joni Mitchell and, and those kinds of people, Stephen Stills writing their own songs, which was amazing because you, you get their viewpoint, their feeling. It's much, it's a much fuller thing. When you get Joni Mitchell writing her own feelings and thoughts and things into her own music and then singing that, you're getting the whole package. Right. Not just something, you know. Nothing manufactured. Yeah. yeah. It was the, so that was the big change in, in, in music. Um, and then in 65, as I was saying, Phil Spector w- wanted to experiment with the folk rock group. Mm-hmm. And I, he heard he heard that we, we were playing in clubs. We were playing in, in a club called The Trip on Sunset Strip. And he would come in and see us. And um, then we went to his house for, for a whole summer. We'd go to his house every day. And uh, we'd have to be there at 2 o'clock. And then he wouldn't come down the stairs until 3 o'clock. And then, and then we'd sit around the piano and he would play chords and say, you sing this, you sing this. And then we'd get our guitars and banjos and play. And this went on for about three months. And one day he said, I have a song for you. And it was called This Could Be the Night, written by Harry Nielsen. 
went into, uh, went into that, that um, what is the name of that famous studio now? I, for, I forgot. Uh, the, yeah. Gold we Star. Went, Gold, Gold Star. Star Studios. We went in there with the wall of sound. And by golly, we recorded our song, you know, and we and we thought, we've made it. This is it. Now we've made it. And so we waited around and waited around for him to put it out. And it didn't come out. And we'd call our manager, Herbie Cohen, and say, what's, what's going on? Well, we're not sure when. And I mean, months went by. In fact, Cyrus Farrier in the group, he said, you know, I'm tired of waiting around. I'm going to go back to Hawaii. Call me if anything happens. And we kind of, it's just kind of... <sighs> We just kind of broke up. Well, the other guys, um, Chip Douglas, who was in the group, uh, started, um, he joined the Turtles as their bass player. And then he started producing the Monkees. And Jerry Esther in our group started arranging for Tom Waits and the association. So we all, and I started taking pictures, you know. Yeah. So we all just pursued our new interests. Well, it's, I mean, if you think about it, okay, so you move on to taking pictures You've been a musician, so you're meeting your subjects, so to speak, exactly where they are, you know, whether it was Mama Cass or Stephen Stills. You were a fellow musician. You weren't some hired photographer by the record company coming in, taking a few shots. You were their friend taking these candid moments, just documenting the day. Exactly. That's exactly what happened. I wasn't thinking, oh, I'm photographing musicians. I was just thinking I'm photographing my friends, the people that are around me all day. Right. You know, whenever I saw somebody that I knew, I just, I mean, I wanted to take their picture. It was a hobby. Yeah. You know, I was, I was drawn to doing that. I just, something in me said, oh, you know, let me frame them up and get a good shot. You know, you know, I'm a Virgo. And Virgos are analytical and they kind of co- make lists and collect things. I was kind of collecting images of people yeah. I knew. It was yeah. a very Virgo kind of a thing, you know. Well, was it interesting, though, as you watched all these friends of yours and you're continuing to take pictures really rise up the ladder in fame? Right. Did anything change, yeah, yes. you know, with... Well, yeah, I mean, I remember I remember being in a car on Sunset Strip and hearing suddenly on the radio, you know, bum, 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 Hey, Mr. Tambourine Man, you know, wow, they made it. They're on the radio, our pals. That was amazing, you know. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I, I learned another thing more recently in life. And that is your Chinese animal. Mm. And your chi- we talked a little at the beginning here about you being an Aries. And I just said, I'm a Virgo. And, and there are certain qualities, you know, to those different signs. But your Chinese animal is the year you were born. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I happen to be a tiger. And a mm. tiger likes Wait. to watch the other animals. They like to, you know, the way I heard it, they like to sit up on the cliff and look down at all the other animals, or I say they hide in the bushes and watch the other animals. And that's, that's the feeling. I don't, I don't want to pose people. I don't want to say, Hey, you know, look here, you know, yeah. uh, I, 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 I don't want them to know. I'm taking, I think it's an offshoot of my psychology interest as well. I like to observe people. I like to watch people. I'm interested in in people, you know, what yeah. makes them who they are? What it, what makes all of us who we are? What is this? What are we supposed to do? I mean, those are the, the burning questions in my mind. 
Well, and I think when you see those types of photos of your favorite musicians, it makes you feel like you're getting to know them. You know, I mean, that's what my whole Instagram has been about. Um, you know, the LA woman rocks. It's these candid photos. Yeah. That's what I love discovering. It gives yeah. you kind of an inside glimpse into that person's world. Right. You exactly. know, there's nothing posed about it. There's nothing camera right. ready about it. And, you know, that's what I find so remarkable and that you were there for so many of those moments. I mean, did you really feel that, you know, when you were taking all these pictures and these stars were rising, that you were in the midst of this zeitgeist that was happening in the 60s? No, no, I wasn't actually. You know, I did. Sometimes I say, boy, I would have been really clever to say, you know, there's a big change in music happening here with all these, you know, these new songwriters uh, maybe I should get a camera and try to capture <laughs> this. Yeah, no, that never happened, you know. Um, no, we just, I mean, like I remember the day I went up to Mama Cass's house. She was she was having a l- little backyard picnic because she'd met Eric Clapton when he was with Cream and they played a, a TV show with the Mamas and Papas and he was very shy. And, Ma, and, and Mama Cass, being an earth mother, you know, mm. said, well, Eric, you know, look, you don't know anybody. Why don't you come to my house, you know, tomorrow and I'll invite some friends over. And and he invited David Crosby and uh, he invited Mickey Dolan. She invited, excuse me, Mickey Dolans. And she invited David Crosby, who brought his young protege. He was making her first record, producing it for her. And that was Joni Mitchell. And, she, and we sat out against these trees at the far end of the yard and she was sitting there against a tree playing her entire first album and it hadn't been released yet. And Eric Clapton was sitting there in front of her, just staring at her, staring at her fingers because she tunes her guitar to a chord and just lays her finger across the fret instead of playing a real chord, like a G or an A or a D. She does it by just moving her finger up and down straight across, if you know what I mean, across Mm -hmm. the keyboard. And he'd never seen that. I mean, the great blues guitar player had never seen that kind of, I mean, in Hawaii, they call it slack key tuning, you know, Hmm. and um, he'd never seen that. So he sat there staring at her and I was sitting there enjoying the music and watching Crosby. Of course, he was smoking a joint, you know, and passing it around. And no, I I just was framing things up, taking a picture. Never once, I promise you, I never thought, wow. What a moment, you know, I'll get a picture of it and people in the future will see this. No, heck no. You know, I, just, I was having fun. You know, <laughs> it, it just it kills me because I've seen that picture so many times where, you know, Eric Clapton is sitting on the grass. He's cross leg. He's got his arms out like yeah. this and he's just staring at Joni. You wonder if he's on drugs. because You don't know what's <laughs> happening, but he's yeah. just staring at Joni kind of wide eyed and she's playing and Crosby's mm. in the background. And that was just a day in the life for you. Yeah. You know? And well, you, said, you know pictures. he was on drugs. Well, observe, <laughs> it's not a drug. It's a sacrament. It's a that, sacrament. I like that word better. Yeah. Uh, that is what Ray Manzarek said. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, the keyboard player in the doors, he said yeah. that once. And I picked up on that. It's true. You know, it's not a drug. It's a flower. It's a flower and it makes you feel good. <laughs> Raymond Zarek always had a way of explaining things based on footage no. I've seen. He always had a way of explaining things so eloquently. He did. He was like a college professor. And then it's on the incredible. other hand, Jim, 
like never even talked. You know, I mean, I mean, I've had people say, well, what, you know, what did, what did you talk about with Jim? I, I don't think I ever talked about anything with Jim. You know, I photographed that group a number of times. I mean, at the Morrison Hotel that day, we did the album cover. And then yes. at the Hard Rock Cafe where we went to get a drink. And then a, a week later, we went out to Venice and spent the whole afternoon shooting group shots, walking around the beach. And, and Jim, I don't think he said a complete sentence in any of those days. He just, he was, he was like a poet and he was an observer. You know, he would smile and nod, uh, but he really never said anything. I, he never would come rushing up and say, hey, guess what happened to me, man? Blah, blah, blah. You know, he just wasn't demonstrative. You know, he was mm. bemused. That's what he was. Bemused means like kind of self-amused, thinking, Mm -hmm. looking and thinking and smiling Mm -hmm. and nodding. You could tell he was, you know, getting, taking it all in. Yeah. Nothing was really coming out. It came out later. It came out later. Yes. Yes. Everything was fodder for his lyrics. That's right. I think. Yeah. I absolutely love that Morrison Hotel um, album cover, and everybody knows it. Yeah. I mean, and obviously it went on to become the name of your gallery, the Morrison Hotel Gallery. Yes, yeah. And I was lucky enough, two years ago in January, the day of the doors, to, yeah. you remember when they were bringing everybody around and everybody could get in front of that window front and take a picture yeah. of it? yeah. I did well, it. Know, what? What happened a couple of years after we took that picture, that window was gone and it was a laundromat in there. The hotel was still there in the back, but that big front window that said Morrison Hotel was just a plain window and it was a laundromat. A couple of years ago, a guy bought that building oh. and he's refurbishing it. He's going to make it a hotel again. And the, the first thing he did was put that window back in. And that's when we had that celebration that night. That window had just been resurrected i didn't know that yeah oh it felt so surreal i mean obviously you know during the time they're rushing you in really quickly they're taking the picture get out we've got a hundred more people in line but i for that brief moment i had such a reverence reverence for that time and the fact that you would take taking that picture of those four guys there i mean tell i I know you probably told the story a million times but i want to hear it well um you know we so I, I had met a, I had met a graphic artist at a love in at Griffith Park one Sunday. Love in was where all the hippies went there, dressed up, smoked, some yeah, grass and played music and stuff. Brought their kids, you know, like a picnic. And while I was there photographing all the hippies, my fellow hippies, uh, this guy walked up to me and said, "Hey, you're a photographer. Well, you want to help me take a picture? Uh, Mama Cass wants me to do her album cover." Well. He was actually um, an architect, Gary Burden. Gary and he Burden. was an architect, and he was helping her remodel her house. And they got to be good friends and smoking buddies, I guess, and for sure. And, and Mama Cass said, Gary, why don't you do my first album cover? And he said, well, Cass, you know, I'm, I'm not a graphic artist. I'm an architect. And she said, well, you make a blueprint, you make an album cover. What's the difference? You know? <laughs> <laughs> Can't he, argue with that. He got it, you know? So... That's when I met him. And um, yeah, I went and took, I knew Mama Cass, of course. And we went and took pictures and did her first album cover. 
And then we started doing more album covers because we, between the two of us, we knew everybody. And we hung out at, at, at Elliot Roberts' Lookout Mountain Management. And then it yeah, became Geffen Roberts. Geffen. And they handled CSN and, and Neil Young and Joni Mitchell and Poco mm-hmm. and the Eagles. They, they handled Jackson Brown, everybody. Everybody. And we were kind of the house, you know, art team. And so... Uh, we did the Crosby, Stills, Nash sitting on the couch, which was a, which was really a fun album and and one of my favorites. And the Doors had seen that, and they called us up, say, "Hey, we want you to take our because they weren't part of that that karmic group of people. They weren't part of the folk rock scene. Yeah, they were know? separate. They were they separate. Were, yeah, from like a jazz group more almost. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And so they they said, "Yeah, come on over, and you know we want to talk to you about our album cover." So we went over to their office, and it was just Jim and Ray and Gary and I. We said, okay, well, great. Uh, what's the title of your album? And and they said, well, you know, we don't really have a title yet. And we said, well, what what do you want on the picture? What do you see? You know what? Well, we don't really know. That's why we called you guys. And we're kind of scratching our head. And just at that moment, Ray speaks up very randomly. And he says, well, you know, my wife, Dorothy, and I were driving through downtown LA the other day, and we saw this funky old hotel that said, Morrison Hotel on the window, you know, and it was like he drew the picture for us as we were talking. We said, wow, that sounds great, you know, and we went down right then. We got in their Volkswagen van and drove down and looked at it. And there it was beautiful, you know. (laughs) I took a picture of of Ray and Jim inside the window sitting on the chairs. And we said, "Okay, we'll come back with the whole group next week. You know, a few days later, whatever it was. And we came down with the four guys now in the Volkswagen van. We parked the van in front, went in. They walked in the lobby and there was a guy behind the desk. And I said, hey, we're just going to be over there for a few minutes, taking a few pictures. You know, nobody was in the lobby. We weren't going to bother anyone. And he got very uptight. He said, no, no, you can't take any pictures without the owner's permission. Well, I I learned years later, there was a, a, a famous slumlord. Owned, owned that hotel and he was very, you know, hands on. He didn't want, you know, you couldn't do anything without his permission. So I walked up to the guys and said, hey, they won't let us shoot in here. Let's, and I thought I could photograph them in front of that window on the sidewalk. They couldn't stop us, right? So I said, let's go outside and you can stand in front of the window and I'll take the picture. And, and so they did and they were standing there and I noticed the light go on inside the, the lobby because I was facing the window and they had their backs to the window. And I said, wait a minute, what is that light? I looked in there. Hey, that's the elevator light. And look, the guy left the desk. This really happened. I said, quick, run in there, you guys. And they ran in there and they just hit those spots perfectly. I mean, you might think, you know, we organized this for an hour, but no. Right. We didn't say, okay, Robbie, you move a little to the left. No, we said nothing. They just hit the spots. I clicked off. Well, I started shooting right up close to the window, and Gary Burden said what he always says to me when we're shooting photos, back up, back up, get the whole window. You know, so I backed up across the street with the telephoto lens and got just the window all framed up, you know. And that, and then we got out before the guy even saw us. And then, yeah, and then it took one roll of film, five minutes. Oh, my and then, gosh. And then we're on the sidewalk, and Jim says, well, you know, let's go get a drink. It was like 4 o'clock in the afternoon. 
And we knew Skid Row was a few blocks away where it was all bars and pawn shops. And we're driving down Skid Row looking for any kind of a bar. I mean, they were, everything was a bar, you know, but which one, you know? And then someone looked out the the, the windshield of of the van and said, look, on the next corner, it says Hard Rock Cafe. Wow. Well, that's where we got to go and have a beer, you know? No one had ever heard that before, Hard Rock Cafe. Right. So we went in there and we had, we all got a beer at the bar. And then, and then these guys, these old you know, winos, these guys who drank in the afternoon, you know, started coming around, just kind of talking because young guys in the bar was kind of weird, you know, and, and Jim started listening to their stories. He'd buy him a beer and, and he, he loved them talking about their life. You know, I left left home at 16 and joined the merchant Marines, you know. Oh, totally. Love to hear that. I mean, he did they talking. know? He they was, didn't, did these guys know that they were no. talking to a rock band? No. No. I don't, <laughs> they had no idea the doors or rock and roll or anything really, you know. Right. But these were nice young guys who were like uh, interested in hearing their story, you know. So we took those pictures. You know, years later, long after the album came out, um, I, I heard a guy, uh, a, a guy said, you know, when I was a little boy in the 30s, I would walk by that bar. So it was there in the 30s. So it did oh. not mean rock and roll. It meant mining, oh, rock in really? a hard place. You know, yes. that's what it meant. Hard rock, hard times, you know. Wow. Isn't that funny? And, you know, as soon as that album came out, they got a call from London and, and a voice on the phone said, would you mind if we use that name? We're starting a we're starting a cafe here in London, and we'd like to use that name, the Hard Rock Cafe. And they said, no, go ahead, go right ahead. And that was the beginning of that Hard, the Rock, Hard Rock Cafe, cafe. empire. It's so funny. And, you know, years later, we started a gallery to sell my pictures 20 years ago. And we had no name for the gallery. Um, and yet we had a, that picture of that album cover in the front window and we were in Soho in New York and crowds of people would walk by and many people would stop and look at that picture and then walk in the gallery because, you know, it caught their attention. Sure. And I was standing there across the street with my partner, Peter Blatchley, and I said, Peter, look, so many people look at that picture. Now, look how beautiful that lettering is on that big picture, Morrison Hotel. And now look up at our window. It's blank. there's nothing on our window and he said you know i will get a painter tomorrow to write morrison hotel on our window more or less you know just to get attention and and sort of echo that picture that was in the window and then it accidentally became the name of our of our gallery and now it's pretty much well known around the world so that one day i think it was december 23rd, maybe? Yeah, because you can see the Christmas signs in the Hard Rock Cafe. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, so that one day got that name for Hard Rock Cafe and for our Morrisonto Gallery. Isn't that crazy? Two empires. Two empires, (laughs) let alone this iconic cover. All right, thanks for listening, guys. Next week, we'll release part two of our talk with Henry. Crosby, Stills, and Nash, Neil Young, and Woodstock will all be topics of discussion. So we'll see you then. Bye.